This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. I had reached the point that I was like, "It. This is not. Uh, this is not that I'm just abusing alcohol. This is there's something wrong with me. When I drink, I'm not. I'm not predictable. And once I put together that that unpredictability makes me not safe, I had to make it black and white in my head. I had to go. I can't. I'm not somebody who can drink safely. And then everything that came with that was life changing. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Drunkish with Stephanie Wilder-Taylor. Stephanie is an author, comedian, TV personality, and co-host of the popular podcasts for Crying Out Loud, Rose Pricks, and Bored AF. She co-created and hosted two seasons of the late-night comedy parenting show, Parental Discretion, with Stephanie Wilder-Taylor for Nick Mom on Nickelodeon. Stephanie is the author of Siffy Cups Are Not for Chardonnay, Naptime is the New Happy Hour, It's Not Me, It's You, I'm Kind of a Big Deal, Gummy Bears Should Not Be Organic, and a very new book, which I am excited to talk with her about today, called Drunkish, A Memoir of Loving and Leaving Alcohol. Stephanie's been featured on Oprah, Good Morning America, 2020, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, Larry King Live, Fox and Friends and many, many more, including CNN, Dr. Drew, The Today Show on NBC. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, her three wonderful teenagers, and her dog, Penelope. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I feel like pressure from all uh, reading my whole bio. Isn't it interesting when you hear about yourself and it's like, well, me? Yeah, but Mm -hmm. it's it's stacked up over the years. It's stacked up. but also after the intro to your show, I was like, oh, are we going to have some questions about gummy bears should not be organic? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, and I, one of the things I love about your books, and actually before I knew you, as I'm now knowing you, I, I have known of your books. I didn't read them all, but I, 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 I read about them and I heard you speak about them. And now having read your latest memoir, Drunkish, all of the all of your books it's just like wonderful seems like evolutions of where you were in life at the time of those writings yeah it was it 
The writing is very immediate because I wrote my first book when my older daughter, who's now 19, was only a few months old. I was just writing about like where I was in the moment of having a brand new baby and how difficult I was finding it and the transition from, you know, comedian going out to clubs at night to, oh my gosh, I'm a stay-at-home mom was so crazy that I started writing about it. Then I got a book deal and I was like, oh no, I have to write a book about being a mom. So you know what I mean? Some Mm -hmm. of it was just what I'm going through at the moment. I join a mommy and me group. I write about that. I, you know, find a pediatrician. I write about that. It was all happening as I was writing it. I I saw your segment on um, Drew Barrymore's show and she had talked about how your writing is so accessible and... um, I forget the words. I'll say like it's user friendly, it's relatable, and um, I, as I shared before the show, like I read the entire book. I could not not read it as I dove in. And you said, "Oh well, that's just because I'm not that good of a writer." And I was thinking, "Wait, what? Like, what? Where does that come from? That like the way you're so you're so good is because you're not that good." So I was I was curious about that. Well, I think what I meant was you know, I have a bit of that imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I'm always, when I read other books, I'm like, oh, I can't do that. You know, I'm not a trained writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of it is kind of natural ability. And I've learned how to write conversationally. Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing in my head is what I've figured out how to put on the page. So I think I'm always comparing myself to, I, I can't do a flowery kind of thing. I can't do like a lot of descriptive. I'm not a poetic writer, Mm -hmm. which listen, you either love it or you hate it. And I think a lot of people find it to be, I guess, quote unquote, easy (laughs) to read. Well, relatable. It's really relatable because again, I, when I'm prepping for the shows, I try to do a deep dive. I really want to understand my guests. I really want to read their work. And, and there are times when I just don't have enough time to read everything or do a thorough read. And um, this was one of those cases where I didn't and I felt stressed, but I couldn't not. I, like, I literally, I wanted to know how every single part of your life, how that all worked out, how it didn't, your journey, uh, which we will talk about, like your journey of trying to figure out this thing about alcohol and about addiction while you're also just living your life and having kids and being in the different types of businesses that you are in. And it's like in real time, like you're on this journey. I was on this journey with you in real time as you're trying to figure all of this out, keep it together, talk yourself out of it, talk yourself into it. And um, anyways, I just, for everyone, I, you, you pick it up, you can't put it down. That's so nice. Thank you. And, you know, it's just that thing that I think we all do. It's a perfectionist thing that when I'm writing it, I'm like, oh, is this too boring? There's a part in the book where I describe what's happening in my head while I'm writing the book, which is like, well, I'm talking about my childhood. Does anybody care about this? But then, you know, I wanted to go all the way back so that people could see some of these addiction can have roots all the way back in your childhood. And Mm -hmm. I really wanted to, you know, the same way I've done this in my recovery journey, mm-hmm. I wanted to put that in the book. Like mm-hmm. go all the way back to how long ago do I remember feeling these feelings? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my first addiction, as I say in the book, was sugar. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, 
that feeling, that incredibly strong, undeniable craving for candy, you don't know any different. When you're a kid, the way you're feeling, you don't know there's another way to feel. So I just thought at first, everyone feels that way. Mm -hmm. And then though, when you get older, you go, oh no, not everybody feels the way I feel. And then you want to keep things a secret. You don't want to share the way you're feeling because you think it's wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, or you've been shamed about something. Like I was really shamed about um, my wanting chocolate so badly that I stole it from the stash that was supposed to be for the trick-or-treaters. Right. You know, and I just wanted to go back and and share with people. I, th- I think it's been helpful for me when I hear about other people to start recognizing those signs of addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, the book, it's a memoir really about my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but you want to hear about like, being four years old, you want to hear about what was going on in my life. You want to hear about my first drink. You, you know. So I, I, I tried to take you through it, and I'm glad that it, yeah, it, it, it came across. I that way. wanted, I wanted to hear all of it. I mean, as a psychologist, I mean, this is like I am fascinated by people and putting together the patterns um, and what fits and what doesn't fit. Because as humans, there are a lot of things that we can profile and look back, and then life also happens, and we're some things don't make sense. And we're all, you know, we're like these meaning making, meaning making machines. Like we're trying to figure ourselves out, figure the world out. Why did I do this? Why am I like this? Oh, is that because of my mom? Is that because of my dad? Oh, that was that experience I had. And largely it's a very helpful process for those of us who can go through it either with our um, support groups or with counselors or with loved ones. And, and then there's also the mysteriousness of like, wait, well, like, why me? Like, why did, why did I at an early age have that sugar fix? Right? Like it, there's, it's just so fascinating. And then the other thing that you just made me think about is, um, how you didn't know other people or lots of other people didn't feel about sugar the way you felt about sugar or the way you responded and were attracted to sugar. Similarly, fast forward with drinking, wait, wait, everyone doesn't black out uh, when you go out on the weekends or everyone like everyone doesn't throw up this regularly? I mean, I'm making that up a little bit, but you know what I'm saying? It's like you don't yeah, exactly. you don't know what you don't know until right. you until you do. And then even when you're told something different, I mean, early on, I, I talk about, you know, giving myself the are you an alcoholic 20 question oh, quiz. Yeah, yeah. And I was still like, mm, these people are wrong. Like you're saying that because I have blackouts, like that makes me a problem drinker. Like everybody has blackouts. It was huge news to me Right. way later after that point. I still at that point, and that was in my 20s when I took that quiz, I still thought the quiz was wrong. Like, I don't know why that question's on there. That seems to be a thing that happens to people. I wasn't exactly polling all my friends, but it seemed right. to me that people lose time and- memories from drinking too much. Right. Well, that makes sense. You Right. That's what alcohol does. And that I love that part. I love that part of the book because were there 20 or 21 questions? How many questions? 20. There's 20, 20. questions. Yeah. And what was so great is hearing, you know, you, you laid out your thinking process. So like each, each question is answered with anywhere from two sentences to a, a short little paragraph. And I was with you. I'm like, okay, let's just see how this thing goes. And I think by the end of the 20, you had, what, maybe three hard yeses? Maybe? There weren't a lot of hard yeses. Right. There were two and a half. Two, okay, yeah, two and a half. 
And I then, give myself a half for do you um, drink to feel more self-confident? Yes. And I that one I was like, I really do have to just say half because I drink to go on stage and perform, but I don't feel like I have to drink in general to feel confident. Right. That was my thinking. Right. So you get to the bottom, you're like, eh, ace this, I'm good. And then of course there is, how do you calculate this? And it is, if you have one, there um, is a, a, ch- a good chance that you, you know, have an alcoholism or addiction. And if you have two, it was like, you definitely do. You're like, wait, what? This is a bunch of crap. I'm like, these people are drunk. Yeah. This yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. I was so mad. I, but I also felt, because you, in this book... What you do in a very honest and authentic way is you let everyone into the internal the debate that so many people have with addiction and the trying to t- like rationalize things away and all the reasons this doesn't make sense and like knowing and a little bit that this is an issue, but so much trying not to think this is an issue. And then also how a lot of the questions, because you're also I think you did a really nice job of like everyone has their own way of coming to this and everyone has their own way of seeking recovery and help. You're not preaching in any way. And like some of these questions and some of the way some of the structures are that are out there can can be sort of rigid and almost, do you feel like help people stay in denial? I don't know if I said that right. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I think if I can kind of speak to that, for for me, only for me, I had to completely surrender to the idea that I can't drink. Now, a lot of people, I think pe- a lot of people are sober curious. Mm-hmm. And what I like to think is that I was sober curious many years before I actually quit drinking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there comes a point where you start going like, hmm, I don't love the way I'm drinking. And that, I think the first time, I mean, I think that happened all the way early in my 20s. I think I was like, "Uh Mm uh-oh. Like I I would remember writing in my journal, like why do I drink so much? But I wasn't ready to deal with it at all. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I had my older daughter and she was still pretty young that I was like, I don't don't love how dependent I feel on alcohol and that I'm feeling more and more dependent on that wine at the end of the day, that fix. You know, and it was starting to really feel like a fix. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to go, maybe I could try to, let me really try harder to moderate this thing. Let me, let me see, Mm -hmm. let me investigate if I don't think I have a problem. I think I could quit anytime, but then the more I would try to quit or the more I would try to control it, the worse it was getting. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is, yes, there's a lot of ways, you know, you, you don't, people don't have to like, oh, you need to quit drinking. Like you, you've identified that you're, you might be an alcoholic. You need to quit drinking. And I understand there's alcohol use disorder. We can call it different things. Mm -hmm. For me, I had reached the point that I was like, it, this is not, uh, this is not that I'm just abusing alcohol. This is, there's something wrong with me. When I drink, I'm not, I'm not predictable. And once I put together that, that unpredictability makes me not safe. Mm -hmm. I had to make it black and white Mm -hmm. in my head. I Mm -hmm. had to go, I can't, I'm not somebody who can drink safely. Mm -hmm. And then everything that came with that was life-changing, you know? Mm-hmm. They say every, what has to change is everything. Yeah. And that if I'd known that going into it, I might have waited even longer right. because it, it is it is a big thing to give up 
the thing that you've come to rely on to feel better, you know, the the tool, the the medicine, it was it was very tough to give it up. So mm-hmm. so do I think I'm not preaching because I think that everybody, like you said, circling back to that, everybody comes to it the way they come to it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with reading my book and just going, huh. Do I relate to some of that? Do I want to take a look at my drinking? Do I want to try to be more mindful? Like mm-hmm. I am in no way saying that anybody has a problem with alcohol and needs to quit. You are not. No. No. Not at all. And I get that's why this book you're one of the reasons it's so accessible is I don't it's not one it's not a polarizing book that's going to turn people away. I mean, if anything there will be people who put it down who it strikes too close to home and maybe they need to process their own place. I mean, the I could see that happening, but it's, 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 you welcome everyone in on your journey. It's, and the ending is not basically, so here's what I've learned and here's what you should do. This is like, this is your journey and what you've learned and what your life has been like. You just, you're putting it out there. Um, I think you now have close to 15 years of sobriety. Yeah, it'll be 15 in May. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, I mean, that, is is such a big damn deal like such a deal um and if you can tell us you wrote about your first drink was at 14 and what you just described when you're old when you started getting sober curious in a real way when your oldest was very young how about how old were you then probably about 40 about 40 okay 39 or 40 okay yeah, later yeah later so again it's also, just that's really important for everyone listening about like everyone has their own journey and it literally is never, it, it's never too late. Uh, everyone's on their journey at their time for lots of different reasons we understand and don't understand. And so it's really inspirational to hear this was at 40, you made this decision. Or was that, was that when you made the decision? That's when you started to contemplate in a heavy way. No, that's when I started to contemplate in a right. heavy way. And it was like, well, by 40, no, by, because by, by 40, I got pregnant with twins. I was either 39 or Uh, 40, right right before I turned 40, maybe I was 39. And then I had already made a decision to quit drinking before that. Mm -hmm. But then I was sober through, uh, for like six weeks and then through my pregnancy. And then I just, I started drinking again after they were born. Right. And I drank for 18 months. So okay. I was 42 when I quit drinking. Okay. But when I started to really contemplate, probably like 38, 39. Mm-hmm. Parent Footprint is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. In today's world, we have so many different relationships in our lives, relationships with our friends, families, significant others, the people we work with every day. They all make life more fulfilling and meaningful, but that doesn't mean they are always easy. Sometimes the best relationships are the ones that require the most work. Therapy is a great place to work on any and all of the relationships in your life, including the one with yourself. Whether you're new to therapy or a longtime fan, consider giving BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp was created to fit into your busy lifestyle. It's entirely online and is designed to be convenient and flexible. Getting started is easy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And if it's not clicking, you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
being someone who has provided a lot of therapy and received it at the same time, I can tell you therapy improves lives. It is a gift for yourself. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash footprint today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash footprint. So I know you've told this story a lot, not only in your book, but everywhere you speak, every podcast you're on. It's just such, the origin story is so important for everyone to hear. So if you could just share with the listeners, what was that, your rock bottom? My moment your that moment. I knew? Yes. So I had reached a point where I was starting to moderate my, really try to moderate, like really feel some shame around my drinking. And the, that that idea that reoccurred in my life a lot of times of like, oh my gosh, I can't help myself. What's wrong with me with ice cream, you know, with candy, with anything that I was compulsive about? Why can't I just have a little? Mm -hmm. And it it really started to affect the way I felt about myself when I would go to have a glass of wine and then have four and wake up the next day hungover and my husband was having to put the kids to sleep and um or wake up with the the babies in the middle of the night. So at that point I started to really try to make some serious rules. Like I am only going to drink on weekdays cuz that gives me at least 5 yeah. cuz Friday's a weekday. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah. and not drink on the weekends and then that would be hard so I'd be like okay I'm only going to drink on the weekends and we have to include Friday cuz that's part of the weekend For so sure. Friday Saturday Sunday and then that would be hard. So I kept making these rules and then breaking them. And I got to a point where I was <laughs> I was trying to have like be self-care. Like yeah. I was like, you know what? I am being really hard on myself. And this is like dieting. If you just restrict, 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 you're gonna binge and that's unhealthy. So I'm gonna be like kinder to myself. And what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna allow myself to like drink the way I wanna drink. And in doing so, this was the how I was screwing with my own brain, right? Yeah. I was like, yeah. in doing so, I'm gonna drink less. Right. Like, like if you were, if you were food counseling somebody and you said, well, stop trying to diet all the time and just allow yourself to eat what you want. Right. Trust your body. Trust, trust your trust body. Trust your body. That's, I was going to trust my body yeah, with yeah, alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you see the thinking? I do. Yes. So I was like, I'm just going to drink the way I want to drink and, and I'm just going to make sure I don't ever drive. I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to start early. So I'm not, I'm never going to be drunk around my kids. It's, this is just going to be right. Um, at home after the kids are in bed, who am I hurting except my liver? Maybe well, bulletproof. That, that's a bulletproof plan. It really was a good plan. Yeah. Um, so that lasted a grand total of probably maybe six weeks or, mm. I mean, it could have been less. I don't, from the time that I was like, I'm just going to stop trying so hard to control my drinking to, and th this is, this is just what happens with me, but it took this to figure out that this is what happens to me. I went, I was invited to a friend's house, a friend of a friend. I went and I was, had one baby with me, one of my twins who was 18 months old, pretty much exactly 18 months old. And my older daughter who was four and a half. And I was, there were a bunch of kids. There were a bunch of other moms. My husband was home with the other twin. And I remember thinking, 
it's like 4.30 in the afternoon. You know, it was kind of early and I was offered a martini. Close to just, five. It's close to five. It's so close to five. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Why, why split hairs? Yeah. Exactly. You know? Right. It's five o'clock somewhere, as yeah, they say. They so do. I have a drink. Everybody's having a drink. There was a nanny, a designated nanny to like entertain the kids. It seemed like such a great, a great time, a perfect thing for me. I'd been cooped up in the house yeah. with, you know, baby twins. I couldn't even go to a restaurant. This is how I felt. Mm-hmm. Self-pitying. Wow. My life is really hard. I'm home with these three kids. My husband gets to go to work. I'm like, my biggest outing is Target. Woe is me. I'm finally out at somebody's house. There's good music playing. There's there's fun people. People are talking to me. I feel like an adult and I'm having adult beverage. Like, so sue me, you know? Yeah. I'm not driving for a while. But as is what happens with me, my body gets drunk before my brain gets drunk. Mm-hmm. So I'm drinking and I don't feel drunk. I feel fine. And so- And not counting. And not counting, right? Just because, counting. because you're in like, you're listening to your body. I'm listening to my body. Right, yeah. Right. And I know that I'm not going to be driving for a while. Yeah. I'm having fun. I fit, we fed the kids there. You know, you know, it was, I felt as I often do, there's nowhere to be. I my brain, I just don't, I just don't think, oh, I'm going to be getting in the car at some point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was as happens with me, my friend was going to leave and she's like, are you okay to drive? And then I was offended. Right. I remember feeling like, why is she even asking me that? That's ridiculous. Obviously, I'm a responsible person. If I'm not okay to drive, I'm not going to drive. I can't think of a time that I ever, like truthfully, was like, I'm not okay to drive. I think I better ask for somebody for a ride. Right. And Ubers weren't a thing when I was younger. So right. Right. you weren't going to call a cab. No. You were just, you're just like, oh, I'll make it. So anyway, uh, that night, more time goes by. My husband's trying to call me. He's getting worried. He just wants to, he he's a he likes to check in mm-hmm. a lot. And I'm ignoring him because screw that guy. He's home with one baby. He's yeah. fine. You know, you're finally out. You're having fun. Home. You're having fun. I, I was having a great time. I was still having a great time. Anyway, then I decided that it was when it was finally time to go because he kept calling me. I kept having these missed calls from him. And I got in the car and I drove home. And of course, I recount in detail Mm -hmm. this story because I, it's been a long time and I'm not writing it down right now. So I don't, I don't want to give the impression that I didn't care and that I, I mean, I cared very much. I woke up the next day, nothing happened except that my husband was very angry with me and waiting for me in the driveway. And he couldn't believe that I'd driven home drunk. At that moment, I still did not think that I was drunk. And I remember kind of arguing with him, getting defensive about it. Um, But when I woke up the next day, I was on the couch and I was dressed and I was insanely hungover. My hangover was so bad that even though, and I describe in the book, like my shame and humiliation once I realized how drunk I'd been, but I also was throwing up nonstop and had such, my head hurt so bad that I needed to go to the emergency room. Mm. Because I, I do get migraines, so my hangovers have always been like next level, mm-hmm. which never stopped me. Right. I've been to the emergency room multiple times. 
Did I ever say I have a bad hangover? Of course not. I said I have a horrible migraine Mm -hmm. and I need treatment for that. Mm -hmm. Was the migraine almost always from, I mean, I still get migraines, so it's tricky, you know? Right. But a hangover migraine was like unbearable. Mm -hmm. So anyway, through all that, I had to go to the emergency room. So there was so much humiliation involved in that next morning for me. And I made a decision which was that as scared as I was and as not convinced that I have alcoholism with a capital A, there was no doubt in my mind that I cannot handle my liquor. Like That was it though. That was the final crescendo. Oh, I've never had another drink. I mean, I I was like, I crossed that final line in the sand. Mm -hmm. I swore to myself that if I was going to listen to my body, that it would not ever involve drinking and driving. And then- Weeks later, you know, there I am doing the thing. And I thought to myself, if any, if I heard about another mother doing that, I would be judging so harshly. So why do I think, uh, I was like, I could convince myself that this was yet another fluke, but it was almost like my life flashed before my eyes, but like my drinking history flashed before my eyes. And I thought, this has never been good. This has mm-hmm. never been good since I was 14 years old. What makes me think that this is somehow going to get better? What makes me think that if I go into the bedroom where my husband was sleeping and promise him this will never happen again, what makes me think that I can keep that promise? Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't keep that promise. And even though that made me feel like a horrible person and like there was something so, so wrong with me. I was like, I think I need help. I, I mean, obviously I tried to quit drinking before and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I, I really need to do something very different. Mm-hmm. I can't just say, I'm just not going to drink again. Right, right. And then the journey of recovery. And so I think the brilliant of the title is drunk-ish, right? Like, eh, ish, am I? Am I alcoholic-ish? I don't like... Why I was still not convinced. Yeah, right. So how? So let's talk about that because that is it. Because that's also I feel very helpful for people to hear. You, this doesn't have to be binary. I am or I'm not, and that's one of the points that you are talking about. Is you can know that something doesn't work for you, and it took a long time and a lot of meetings and a lot of sage. Um, the wisdom of lots of people who had several years of recovery to finally tell you, like, let's not focus on the word. Let's just focus on you and your life. Right, right. I think that for me, again, I really want to make that clear. I did need it to be binary because I, I don't do well with wiggle room. Like if I start thinking like, well, maybe I shouldn't be drinking for now, but at some point at a later date, I'm going to realize I can't, like I had to just go, I can't drink again. Mm -hmm. I don't know that this is alcoholism, that word. I didn't like that word. The reason why is because I think it looks different for so many people. And, you know, in recovery, sometimes they're like, well, you know, you're just stopping. Like in my mind, I'm like, I I don't, but see, how do I put this? In my mind, I never saw myself as somebody who would drink and drive, right? Like people that Mm -hmm. get DUIs, like that's other people. Mm -hmm. But it took me doing something that I was like, the only reason I didn't get a DUI or, or many other times in my life is pure luck. 
Right. There's no difference between me and somebody who got a DUI and then maybe got a second DUI, except that, I mean, did they maybe drink higher amounts and go out in their car more often than I did? Maybe. Mm-hmm. But in my 20s, I dr- I drank, I drove drunk a lot of times and I just didn't get mm-hmm. a DUI. Right. So the thing was, is I always had in my head for years and years and years, alcoholism looks like this. Right. It looks like my friend Landry, who has two drinks and his personality changes and he's slurring his words. Right. It looks like somebody who cannot keep a job and cannot keep and like gets divorced and loses custody of their kids. Like that's what it looks like. So right. the, I have this image in my head. So I'm like, well, I'm just somebody who tends to drink a little bit too much and make bad decisions. Like, I don't know that that does that. Right. But Right. But I also but, feel like you were getting messages from some of the folks when they're checking in and telling their stories, which we know is a big part of, of AA is um, you know, I've been in rehab three times. I've been addicted to heroin, alcohol, and unless you have been in rehab more than once, and unless you like, you're here. They're like, then you are not an alcoholic. You're like, ah, oh, yes. See, he's talking to me right there with those those tests that you had to work through. I I really had to just keep it about me, and um, in twelve step they say, you know, take what you need and leave the rest. And I, I had to have that hammered home to me. The more I sat listening to other people and and saw the differences and was like, well, that's that's not me. I don't relate to that. I had to just put blinders on and go, let me take the stories that I relate to. And and honestly, many times I just felt I, I think there are a lot of ways to recover. You know, going to meetings is one way. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's really helpful because I I like a lot of support and I I love the connection. Mm-hmm. And it and to this day, I still um, am in very involved in my recovery community because I think that without hearing other people's stories and relating to people and feeling like you're not alone, it's very difficult to do. I find that harder. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why is because. I feel like I maybe I'm just not a strong person. Maybe I just don't have good willpower, but I will talk myself out of anything. If mm-hmm. I'm not reminded often that I can't drink, mm-hmm. and the way that I'm reminded is by hearing someone else's story that I go, "Oh yeah, that's just like me. I feel I feel and think the same way." If I'm not reminded of that, the thoughts are going to creep into my head mm-hmm. that like I really wasn't that bad. Right. Right. Cuz truly e- Yes, I drove drunk with my kids in the car. This is how my brain works. I will eventually get to the place that I'm like, yes, I did this one bad thing. But like, I could just, but now there's Uber. So if I'm going to go somewhere, like the way the teenagers are, if I'm going to go somewhere where I'm drinking, like then I just will never drive there. And I'm not a person who is getting drunk. This is what my brain will do. Yeah, And I will forget the other things about my life that weren't pretty. I will forget the fact that I needed Xanax every single day to feel like I could cope with life. I will forget that I wasn't present half the time Mm -hmm. because I was thinking about like going out that night or drinking, or I will forget how alcohol really makes me feel and how flaky I was and how little I answered the phone Mm -hmm. after a certain time of night. And Mm -hmm. do you know what I'm saying? So I will forget all that and focus on like, 
Totally. How great it would be to go out and have a glass of wine. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned Xanax because I want to move to uh, anxiety. Sure. Um, but mm-hmm. before, the, the question that I um, has been in my mind is, how long did it take you into recovery for you to use the word alcoholic with yourself? Because it seemed like it took a long, it took, a, it seemed like it took a while. It took, I, I think a year. Okay. Okay. Um, Which seems like a long time. Yeah. It felt like a long time as I was reading it, but in the terms of your recovery, like that's when it was intense, right? That's when you were grappling with it. And, um, I was fighting it. Yeah. 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 And again, Hey, like I know people that stopped drinking because of some of the things we talked about, because they were just like, you know what? Alcohol doesn't serve me. And I don't, I'm not going to drink, but they're, they don't feel like, oh gosh, if I had one drink, mm-hmm. I would go right back to, right. but that's not me. Let's talk about the intersection of, um, and then in the clinical field for everyone, there's this dual diagnosis. And, I, and I'm mm-hmm. not about a lot about labels, but I do think it's helpful for people to understand these categories of how things play off each other. So dual diagnosis is where you have a substance use or addiction issue, and then you also have some sort of mental health issue, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder. And often these things go hand in hand. And and the reason there is such a thing in this, there's a field now, dual diagnosis, is because in the past, people would just focus on one and not the other and not understand and respect the interplay between how these two things work. And Right. So I have anxiety. So I need Xanax. Okay. But I also drink to be less anxious. Okay. But when I'm hungover, it actually increases my anxiety. So I need Xanax to actually like chill out and deal with my life. So, right. The cyclical interaction, it it just doesn't complicate everything. I, I mean, I think if you're a person who's dealt with anxiety, sometimes you don't know another way to feel. I mean, I think I was dealing with anxiety from a really young age Mm -hmm. and trying to self-soothe with candy, with anything that made me feel better, took me out, out of myself. And the first time I ever took Xanax, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is helpful. Mm -hmm. But it was a small amount of Xanax. Mm -hmm. The first time I took like a milligram of Xanax, it was like that Wizard of Oz moment where it went from black and white to color in the way that I was like, oh my gosh, is this how regular people without, is this how people feel? Right. Where's this little blue pill been all my life? This is crazy that I was never like, I need this. And then I was on a quest to like have enough Xanax to be able to take it every day because why shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. It's, I was treating my anxiety and that, that was all I knew. Mm Listen, I wasn't somebody who was like big on like yoga or mindfulness or I like a shortcut. And I was like, I don't understand why these losers would be, you know, spending an hour trying to meditate when you could just take a pill. Take so much time. So much time. (laughs) Yeah. That was my thinking. Yeah. Still kind of is, but you know, I can't have it. Yeah. Which is the bad news. But yeah, so I was, I started taking Xanax, but late in life uh, because I didn't, I got diagnosed with postpartum anxiety. Mm -hmm. So my anxiety, my like low level anxiety that I'd had my whole life that I would not have told you was anxiety went crazy after I had a baby. I don't know if it was postpartum depression. I I was crying all the time. 
but I was very, um, you're scared. The feeling was yeah. over, uh, hypervigilance, mm-hmm. fear, uh, is my daughter breathing enough times per hour? Is she, like I was obsessed, like staying all night googling things, yeah. symptoms. I I constantly thought like she had autism or she was you know gonna die of SIDS. Like the thoughts in my brain were nonstop, and I couldn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And so when I wrote about like in sippy cups. I was still able to be funny even at that time. <laughs> you but have always been able to be funny. Yes. <laughs> when I wrote about some of those feelings and I wrote about like the baby blues, I mean, I went to the doctor and said, this is how I'm feeling. And he kind of discounted it and said, well, that's just normal. That's how everybody feels, right. which is not true. No. I do think a lot of women feel this way. Um, but it wasn't until my older daughter, Elby, was over a year old that I was given a prescription for Xanax. And then I went on um, Zoloft and Xanax. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that might've helped me a lot, except that I was also drinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't going to tell the doctor. No, no, no. About that. He doesn't need to know that. He does not need to know that. He's on a need to know basis. And I know I need Xanax because it's helping me. Exactly. Don't overwhelm him with too much information. (laughs) I... Um, I, I, I'm glad that you, you know, you wrote about and we're talking about postpartum anxiety because for, first of all, not enough people talk about postpartum depression, but that is what has gotten the press when there has been press. And in more recent years, there is more talk about postpartum anxiety as separate from postpartum depression with all of the, the things that you talk about, like the fear that your child's not breathing, the fear that your child has some disorder, the fear that your child, something bad's going to happen to them. Um, I can't tell you how many guests I've had on this show who have talked about their postpartum anxiety. Like, so it is for everyone listening, like it is, it's awful and it's real and it's treatable and it's something to get help for and not have to, you know, this isn't like your bad mom, there's something wrong with you. This is, it's a really difficult situation. And this is where you talk to your doctor and hopefully one who acknowledges. Um, and I think these days there is more knowledge than when you were going through this, um, back then. I also, yeah. I also think that, and you've probably talked about this on many other shows. So forgive me if I'm repeating something that you talk about, but I think we don't talk enough about the fact that when you have a baby, it triggers also a lot of childhood stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, because if you, if you did not have an ideal relationship with your mother, if you, you know, felt unsafe as a child, all of a sudden it feels like a massive responsibility to do things very different, differently. And for me with perfectionist tendencies and people pleaser tendencies, it was like this big giant cocktail for lack of a better word of anxiety provoking, thinking, you know, it felt like a lot of pressure right? to do everything exactly right. Yes. Yes. That, that, that's really important. And, um, and back to how much our childhood experiences, um, they just go into, you know, nature and nurture and you, um, had a complicated and a strange relationship with your father, not on you you, um, your mom remarried. And then when she said she wasn't moved you across the country in middle of high school. And then you have these other siblings and a stepdad. I mean, there was a lot of adversity. You had, you had a lot of legitimate adversity. 
Yeah, I did. And, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of good moments too, but I don't know if it's my constitution, but, you know, kids respond to these kind of like environmental things differently. And my response, you know, some, I've talked to lots of friends that had maybe an angry parent and they just get kind of smaller. Mm-hmm. And my way of dealing with things was just to have like an effort attitude. Mm-hmm. And I got, I was very defensive. I was angry. Mm-hmm. I would get in huge screaming matches with my stepfather because, you know, it just reached a point when I was little, little, I wouldn't, but I reached a point maybe like early teen years where I was like, I'm not going to put up, like, I'm not going to put up with this. That yeah, was screw, screw I would, this. Like, bring it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. I would scream at him, back at him and call him names. And at one point I remember just being like it, because my, my stepfather did threaten to kill me Whoa. one time. And I remember just reaching a point where I was like, then do it. Wow. Like I'm tired of living in this anxiety and fear of you. Like bring it. Right. Like right. let's go. Right. Right. And, and I just remember that that, I mean, that's not healthy, and then when you when you when I moved from home, like I still had that attitude because mm-hmm. it doesn't just go away. Well, and I would and I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying so there was a lot of like rebelliousness mm-hmm. and anger in me and feeling like not safe and not yeah. cared about. Right. And then I was seeking the feeling of being safe. And I was seeking that through alcohol. Through, like I was seeking that something to help me not care. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. And I want to, I, I will argue that your bring it on, let's go. That is adaption to circumstance, right? That is a coping response because either right. we lie down fetal and wait to be attacked and abused and mistreated, or it's like, let's go. That this is going to happen, let's do this. And um, there's fire and fierceness and power in that. Um, It's when, I mean, then, because you could have had that without substances. I would argue, I mean, as a coping response, like that's part of what makes people, is that adversity helps make people strong. That's where resilience can come from. And unfortunately, when we experience trauma, we have maladaptive coping responses too. And substances are one to help us regulate our undysregulated, scared, uh, anxious feelings. Right. So what later in the book, when, you know, you could I blame my parents? I think a lot of people do. Yeah, but I don't think that that's what made me an alcoholic. I think that it's, we don't know why, but Mm -hmm. I was probably born with that tendency. Mm -hmm. And then what do things happen that maybe like trigger it? And maybe somebody else could have an addictive gene, but they learned other ways early to cope. You know what I mean? We don't, I don't know, but my father, my biological father was an addict. Yeah, I know that for sure. And so I think it's genetic. I think it's environmental. I think it's just it, it just is what it is, and it doesn't really matter in the end to me. And I agree. I completely agree with you from where I sit. What, actually, before that question, I, I, how difficult was it deciding to put yourself out there in the way that you do, very raw, very authentic, I mean, very funny, and you tell a lot of very intimate stories, 
knowing that you're putting yourself out to the world and you have these teenagers now? Like, what was that process? So, and I teach memoir writing too. Mm-hmm. And so I, I need to practice what I preach mm-hmm. with all, all, all the women that I teach. And it, it's just that you can't write like anyone's going to read it. I, I, I have to just, I have to just write what happened and worry about that later. And yes, it's, it's very intimate and it's very personal, but wouldn't you rather read the truth than like me prettying up a version of myself that I feel like is more palatable? Like I wanted to go back. I wanted people to be able to laugh. You know, I, tragedy plus time, right? right. It's, I, I know that I have enough sobriety under my belt to safely be able to go back and like, we can laugh at how in denial I was. I mean, some of it, yeah, is sad. It, it, it's hard to write about that stuff, but I feel like if you don't really tell the truth, you're not going to completely connect with people. Mm-hmm. They want the warts. They want that oh, yeah. stuff. So I have to just tell myself like, and honestly, I read many parts of this book to my husband as I was writing it, like to see how it was going, but he hasn't read the book. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't necessarily want him to, because I didn't write it for him to read it. Mm-hmm. I didn't write it for my kids to read it. My kids are not that interested in my life, to be honest with you. <laughs> if they read it yeah. later, you know what? I don't, I don't have secrets. Right. So that's the thing. So if they read it, they read it. Yeah. Then they're going to know yeah. more about me than they probably want to know. I love that. Um, I love that approaches of right, you know, without thinking about the audience, like write your truth. And that is what I think is the magic sauce of the book. I mean, if you would have done these other things to it, I'm, that probably would have been the difference from me going, yeah, I can scan this and get ready. Like this, it was so real and, um, and yeah, I like I wanted to know. Like I want and I was like I was on your team. I like wanted like how she could do this. She could do this and then you're like you you would say what you told yourself and I'd be like, "Oh no, 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 no. You're getting so close. Come on, you're getting so close." And it's just so I I really appreciate the authenticity. I'm thinking about a um a guest that we had and he wrote a memoir and a uh, largely to his daughters and he got the first print and he went whoa, no, 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 publisher, editor, no, 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 we we cannot do, I can't put this out. And they're like, sorry, it's already out. And it turned out to be a completely powerful healing. It's a healing experience for his family. This beautiful memoir by Kwame Alexander, Why Fathers Cry at Night, a mixture of poetry, family recipes, um, bearing his truth about the love he had for each of their mothers, the true love and the true heartbreak and why fathers cry at night. So it's just beautiful. But to your point, he was like, no, this can't go out. And it was out. And that's the power. The power is the realness and the authenticity. Well, there were a lot of parts of my book. I always think that I'm doing a good job if I feel just profoundly uncomfortable when I'm writing something. Mm. If I'm just like, oh, I just get a full body cringe of like, I cannot believe I'm putting this down. Um, I think honestly, the worst of it though, was writing about the drinking and driving. Mm. I knew that, I knew I had to, of course, include that. I knew that was kind of the, it was the midpoint um, for a reason of the book. I wanted it to feel like a before and an after, Mm -hmm. you know, how it was, what happened, and then leading what happened after. Yeah. And my fear in writing that chapter was 
of just people judging me. I mean, you can't help but think, oh God, the Amazon reviews. People are just going to be like, this person's horrible. Mm. Because as I've talked about, and I think I talked about it in the book, you know, anytime I've put myself out there, I have been met with a lot of people who are vehemently opposed to what I have to say. Lots of haters out there. A lot of haters. I've, I've read a lot of awful comments about myself and that I should have my kids taken away from me. And I just thought, well people are going to judge. And also I had this fear and I had this fear before I ever said it on TV, before I ever admitted to it publicly. You know, I mean, I know I'm jumping around, but after I got sober, I was kind of outed in a smaller way where I had Mm -hmm. written on my blog about quitting drinking. And then the New York Times picked it up and wrote a story about it. And I was like, oh my God, now all these people know. And I hadn't written it in a way it was this giant admission. I had just told my small amount of blog readers, hey, I made this decision to stop drinking. So I was in no way ready to say like, I drove drunk to the freaking world. I was not interested in that. And then it was a few years later, I was five years sober when Katie Couric had me on her show and blindsided me with saying that she'd found out that I'd driven drunk. Mm. So then- the Band-Aid was ripped off, and I had talked about that. Yeah. So in retelling the story, it's not that that was such a big secret at that point. It's that I had never felt really comfortable admitting that for a couple of reasons. I felt like it's very easy to dismiss somebody's story as that will never be my story. If you see yourself as I would never, ever have too much to drink and drive my car. Right. That would be so irresponsible, yeah. which of course it was. Right. It was a terrible thing that I did and it inspired me to get sober. Um, what I've learned is that it's a human mistake that I made right. because when I put the substance of alcohol in me, right. I make bad decisions. So I did the responsible thing, which was to stop putting alcohol in my body. Mm-hmm. Now, everything that came with that decision was really difficult and a learning experience, Mm -hmm. right? But I have to like give myself, cut myself some slack, give my, show myself some grace that I, I was able to stop thinking of myself as this horrible person that did this horrible thing and of a Mm -hmm. human Mm -hmm. parent that made a mistake and is now committed to doing better. Yes. And I just didn't want people to get to that part of the book and go like, oh, and write me off. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I do. And that, well, that was not my experience. And I don't think it's going to be many people's experience. Um, what's? Uh, well, I'm just saying that's why that yeah. part was probably really difficult to yeah. write. Because it, it felt like, oh, right. when you tell somebody, a friend, something about yourself, and then you worry they're not going to like you anymore. Yeah, I totally, I had that totally get that. I think, you know, with all the judgment that's out there, um, for any of us who have... Uh, dealt with mental health issues, dealt with substance abuse, experienced trauma and the the effects of trauma. The other side of it is it just increases our empathy and compassion for others. Because as you said, it's we we other people all the time, like, oh, that's not me. Those are those people. And until we have some of these experiences, it just opens us up, I think, to humanity um, and the amount of empathy and compassion and humanness that comes out of that and appreciation for for life. Um, I think that's one of the byproducts, hopefully the positive byproducts of dealing with something so difficult. 
Yeah, well said. Okay, we are at the parent footprint moment question, but just before, what do you want? What what do you want people to get from this book? What is your wish for putting this out into the world? I hope that anybody that has struggled with some of the feelings that I always thought I was the only person feeling can just feel a little seen, Mm. less alone. You know, I think it's so important. And that was the biggest thing for me was such a breakthrough moment was when I heard somebody say my story. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that was the impetus for writing the book. I thought, I thought when I hear other people's stories, it makes me feel so much better. Mm -hmm. So what if I was to tell my story and put it all in a book and I, I write books so I was like, I think I have this story to tell, and it's just my story. It's not that special. It's not. It's not a crazy low bottom story. It's not. There are, and I was like, there aren't a lot of memoirs that are just about addiction, but that kind of high bottom. I originally wanted to call it high bottom girls because mm. that's what I would mm. refer to myself as. I have a really high bottom, <laughs> uh, and then you know, but the story is really like it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. High bottom, low bottom, like it's all the same thing, yeah. and it's all the same feelings. It's just in different forms. So I thought if I can help one person who doesn't have the opportunity to be in the places like recovery meetings that I am to hear their story. Mm -hmm. Like, let me make that accessible to whoever. Yeah. People that are secretly maybe thinking about their drinking and then they can, in the safety of their own home, read my story and hopefully relate. Yes. Done. Done and done. Okay. Parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an as a parent, as an individual, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. You know, I I did give this some thought, and I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure of mine as a kid, because I don't remember a lot of early moments, but I can tell you a time that was really, that really changed me as a parent. And that was the first time my older, my now older daughter was a baby and was sick. And I remember having this feeling because up until this point, I had been very anxious about like trying to do everything right. And I remember this moment that she was really sick and my husband was out of town and she was dehydrated. She'd had a cold and we found out later that she, this kid gets easily dehydrated. And I was having to make the decision of should I bring her to the ER or not? And I was grappling with all of the intuition versus I can't I can't feel my intuition. I don't feel like I have a per, I need somebody to tell me what to do. And I was I had called the pediatrician. Here's the symptoms, and you know. Th- anyway, I remember the moment where I was like, Nope, I got to bring her in. I'm the parent, and it's all up to it's up to me. Mm-hmm. Like. I am her parent. There's nobody, there's nobody, there's no other parent. There's no, it's not up to my parent to tell me what to do with my child. This is my child. I remember feeling that so strongly Mm. and then going into mama bear mode and taking her to the hospital and kind of telling them what to do and here's what her symptoms are and here's what's going on. And then I remember holding her and thinking, this is so beautiful, this moment of like, I am her mother. I am the person that provides mm-hmm. comfort. Like the hospital is the one that's going to 
give her an IV and rehydrate her. But I'm, she, the way she was looking at me because she was so sick and looking up at me and I was holding her and I thought, I'm, I'm mom. Yeah. I'm mom. I will forever. Oh my gosh. I could just cry thinking about it. I just remember thinking this is so beautiful. Like I am so honored Mm. that I get to be the one to parent her, how I, with the love Mm. and the safety, like she's safe with me and I will make sure that I keep her safe. That's, it sounds like the moment you actually like stepped in and owned it, right? Like owned the role, the relationship. Yeah. I think it, I think it took that kind of intensity Mm -hmm. of like, somebody's got to do, you know what I mean? I think up until then I felt like, and I I make a joke about this at the beginning of the book that like, I felt like a teen mom, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though I was in my late (laughs) thirties, it was like, what am I doing having a baby? That's crazy. I think what (laughs) kicked, I think what kicked in there is that, that fire that you talked about, right? Like, like let's go. Like that strength in you kicked in there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because I had to kick a couple of nurses' butts. I'm sure you did. Right. (laughs) Right. Oh, Stephanie, there's so much more that I could talk about. Um, I know I could talk to you for two hours. I feel like I'm in therapy right now. This is gold. This is gold. Um, For me. Yeah. Well, it is for me too. I I learned a lot from your life as you have written it. And um, let's just say this is part one. Let's just, this is part one and we'll we'll figure something else out. Thank you. Um, tell everyone where not only the book, your podcasts, your media, you do a lot of stuff. Tell everyone where they can find you. Okay. So they can go check out my main podcast, which is called For Crying Out Loud that I do with my friend and co-host for 13 years, Lynette Carolla. And we talk about all this stuff. We talk about parenting and addiction and our lives and marriage and all the stuff. And then, yeah, in case you watch The Bachelor, which... Maybe some of you do. I do a bachelor podcast called Rose Pricks. <laughs> I also teach writing. So that's all on my website, stephaniewildertaylor.com. Awesome. I awesome. think that's it. Well, I am so glad we're connected now. And uh, this has just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah, you, Dr. Yeah. Dan. Thanks for listening, everyone. I know that you are thinking about all the people you want to forward this episode to because of the impact it will have on them. Thank you for being part of our community and bringing your amazing community to our community. We so appreciate your five-star reviews. They really do make a difference. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. Two things. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become. And ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com.